Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. And this is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 87 for September MMXIV. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock... Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are November's Backroll Number 36 and Gotham Academy Number 2, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Also, Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com, high-performance, noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com, plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Backroll to Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and trend the hashtag TBUFamily. Well, let me tell you about my life for a brief moment, because since I spoke to you in 
August, crazy things have been happening. I kid you not. So if you recall, there was an incident with a bat flying around as I was, you know, watching a trailer for a film. I, I caught the bat. I released said bat. And I thought to myself, well, that was a harrowing experience, but it's over now and I have survived. Now, a couple weeks ago, so this is uh, this is in August, but post, you know, when I had actually put out my episode. Well, I, you know, I came home and and uh, I was looking at a poster that I had laid out. It was the Guardians of the Galaxy because I was going to bring it to school to put him in in the classroom that I teach in. And I I found this little like pellet kind of thing, and I thought that kind of looks like it could be scat or you know guano or something like that. And uh, so obviously, you know, I threw it away and just wishful thinking maybe, well, hopefully it's actually just something from a bug or something like that so wishful thinking so maybe a few days later it was a Sunday I can specifically remember that I don't remember when I first found that other one it was a Sunday it's getting ready for church I go to one of my drawers because I have a dresser that has like socks and and some shirts and stuff in my living room and well I find something that looks in fact like it could be scattered the back guano again on one of my shirts so now I'm a little more concerned, like, what is this? What's going on? And uh, I go to church. I decide to come back and, and search because I feel like potentially there's another bat in my room. I actually, you know, I just walk into the into the the apartment and I look behind that very dresser and I see kind of this, this clump of brown and I'm like, oh no, that's a bat. So... Here's bat number two of the summer, mid-August. So I call call my maintenance people, and I, I just, you know, for some reason, I, I can't really get in touch with someone who actually works there. It's always this answering service that they live somewhere else, and they answer for, and then they dispatch or whatever. So I'm calling, and bats aren't on the list, so they are not going to help me. They cannot help me. So they suggest, you know, call animal control. So I call animal control. Animal control says, hey, we don't deal with live animals like this. Wildlife, we deal with, like, I guess cats and dogs. I guess that's all they do. So we can't help you, but we can get the fire department out there to help you catch this bat. So let's be honest, people. You know, people are in accidents, and there are fire house fires, like really severe things. So I told them, you know, that seems like a waste of resources. Let me just try to do something else. I end up calling maintenance back again and sort of just unraveling almost and being like, this is the situation. Would you please come and help? Still, bats aren't on the list. There's no sympathy there. So I call again, and I'm like, well, you know, no." I call the animal control again, and I said, well, no one's helping me out. Can you please just send the fire department? So after that, about two minutes later, I get a knock on my door, which I thought, oh, the fire department, you know, they're there. And it was actually a maintenance person, so then I had to run and call the fire department again, and say please cancel that call so the maintenance guy uh he gets he captures the bat and it's not moving because remember last time i told my story once i dropped that bucket it was screeching and i thought oh that's a little odd and i said hey is is it dead and it really seemed like it was potentially dead he lifted the little cup that he had placed over it and so anyways um it's you know thinking about it now i i wonder well was it dead or is that you know what bats are like in the daytime it's like hibernation almost and almost as if they're in a coma 
So now in hindsight, let me recommend this to you listeners. If you ever find some sort of animal like this in your house, I really recommend if someone's picking it up to keep it and keep it for testing. So a week prior to all these goings on, I found a mark about an inch or two inches uh, long and it was red just under my collarbone. And, you know, I mean, things bite you in the middle of the night. We, we all know that we eat a certain amount of spiders, apparently, because they just crawl in our mouths and while we're sleeping, we don't notice that. So I thought, well, you know, it's probably bug bite, but it, it seemed kind of weird. So, no, I didn't see any teeth marks. However, the fact that there was a bat in my apartment, that, in fact, they do actually bite people uh, when they are sleeping and, some, and you may not feel it, all of this added up to the fact that, you know, I may need some rabies uh, vaccinations. So I go to urgent care. Hey, guess what? Urgent care doesn't deal with that with rabies vaccinations. I got to go to uh, health control. So I go to health control. I give them my whole story. It's just kind of up in the air. Did I get bit? I don't, I have no idea. Like I wasn't awake when it happened. I don't know what this mark is. There was a bat in my apartment. So it's either get these shots, pay a lot, a lot of money and get these shots and be okay. You could be getting them for nothing, but be okay or not get the shots and if you get any sort of rabies symptoms basically after that you're dead there's no going back from that so they suggested that I probably get the shots so it's a very specific schedule that you get these vaccinations um, and that I had to go to the emergency room for the first set because they have to give you a hemoglobin and so I went to the emergency room and I was there for four hours and that is not an exaggeration sitting there telling my story to so many people finally you know I the pharmacy gives the the uh, hemoglobin which because of my low weight they had to divide it up into four shots so I had four shots of that and then actually the shot the one shot of the vaccine I then had to go back uh, three days later to the emergency room because health control isn't open on Saturdays I had to again sit in the emergency room for four hours and get vaccine number two and I again was telling my story to multiple people and I was like even before I told my story I was just like I just need vaccine number two I would just need and just sitting there I mean waiting and all I needed you know I didn't have to tell my story multiple times I just need that second vaccine they should have had me logged in all of this stuff then the, the next two shots, luckily, were were not as bad. I could go to health control and get them. And so finally, I'm done with it. I asked, you know, if I get bit again in the future, am I okay? And they're like, no, actually, you'd have to go and get two more shots. But my recommendation to you, fellow people out there who may have some problems, is that uh, you really need to keep the bat because they would have tested it. I just didn't think of it. I mean, how many people do you know have, like, bats that come in and you have to catch them? So they're bat adventure number two. In the midst of all of this, I think it must have been either the third, it must have been right after the third shot actually that week because uh, it goes zero, day three, seven, and 14. So it was like day seven and it was the day after that. Back to school night, you do the the presentations to the parents, your spiel for 10 minutes each period, you talk to them and everything. I come home, you know, I take off my business clothes, I go back, I'm going to watch an episode of Outlander and then go to sleep. I, I'm sitting on my computer, I go back to my bedroom where I had just been and there's something, there's something black on my floor and, you know, my glasses aren't on and it could be a thread, you know, you find thread, but, but it's a little too thick. So I get a little bit closer and sure enough, there's a little head sticking up. 
So I go back, I get the bucket, the the bucket that saved my life, in fact, for, for the first bat. Get the bucket, get my glasses. Now the snake, it is in fact a snake. I, I You may have been wondering what it was, but it was a snake. It's now slithering away. So I'm running after it. And I'm like, no, and I drop the bucket. So now the snake could be under the bucket. The snake may not be under the bucket. I'm not going to look under the bucket because it could obviously escape very quickly. So it's sort of this unknown. I have to actually spend the night at somebody else's house because, frankly, I don't want to be in here. Now I'm just super frustrated because I've had two bats and now a snake in my apartment. So what the devil is going on? So lots of craziness. Uh, I call maintenance that night. Guess what? Snakes aren't on the list. Animal control? Sorry, snakes aren't on the list. Fire... You know, I could help the fire people could come again. I'm like, no, just don't bother about it. The next day, I called manager of the apartment complex. They didn't call me back, but finally a maintenance person decided uh, that he would come in. I actually did catch the snake. He got rid of it, kept my bucket. He asked if he could throw it. I was like, no, that saved me a couple times. I need it. And um, previously, the week prior, I put in a maintenance request just for them to do a walkthrough and figure out where are these creatures getting into, and they had yet to do it, so I said, hey, we need to do this right now. So we did a walkthrough. He found some pretty significant holes, actually, both of them in the kitchen, uh, several cracks and, like, bigger openings under my kitchen sink, and then a large hole that leads to a pipe, a sewer pipe, and it goes up in a hollow wall, and he thinks that that was where bats were actually getting in so all of those are sealed it's been a week i guess or maybe two weeks without incident so i'm thankful about that i mean i'm telling you my life had had seemed like if you remember the incredible hulk with edward norton and they had like a little tick bar almost at the bottom and said how many days without incident which of course his incident was turning into the hulk that was my life because it was just like one thing compounded after another and it was just it was it was chaos it was so frustrating and stressful and i'm so glad it's over but you know (laughs) Oh my goodness, how many people could experience that? So my recommendation to you is um, really to keep bats because uh, rabies shots are expensive and time-consuming and just... I would not recommend anyone go through that. But hey, that is my life, or was my life. I'm hopeful that it stays somewhat clear for right now but yeah so I guess that's it I just wanted to kind of update you uh I I I remember fondly uh in a couple amazing episodes from Michael Bailey just where he reflected on what was going on in comics at the time and then also pieced it together with what was going on in his life at the same time so I don't really talk about myself that much but I thought since I already talked about the bat at one point that we've got this second bat so uh if I was bit by the bat will I actually become Batgirl I think somebody asked me and well I don't know I guess I got these rabies vaccinations to prevent that but who can really know and then in between all of this, Dustin, of course, he challenged all of his uh, contributing staff to the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. And Josh, he kind of, he threw out, you know, you should challenge the new Batgirl creative team. And uh, I thought, no, you know, 
I, at this point in time, you know, all this stuff was going on. Really wasn't sure what what I was going to do with this ice bucket challenge. Wasn't sure who I wanted to challenge or anything like that. And then I thought, you know what, maybe that would actually be a good idea. And taking a page from his book, because he actually writes to people before he challenges them, just to get their approval before he does it publicly, I wrote to Beth Stark. Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher uh, to ask them, hey, are you willing to do this? And they ended up writing back and saying yes. Since we're from different uh, countries, uh, we have to do it a di little bit differently, but let us know when you're done. And hopefully you saw that video. It's on uh, the Facebook page, and, and I think I put it on Twitter and everything else. And no, I'm not, you know, honestly mad at, at my friend William who dumped it, but you can see me go after him because he, and he laughed afterwards because I asked, you know, how much water did you put in that? And he said, you didn't tell me how much I could put in it, and smiled. So he certainly did that on purpose but that was like the most filled bucket I think I've seen in the videos that I have seen. So anyway, so I challenged them and then they just did an awesome, I just love their creativity and the fact that they had Batgirl, they utilized Batgirl to actually send the message for them and, and to really uh, approve of and, and advertise for um, ALS and, and that association. And it was just great to, I mean, that's, I feel like that's just, it gets to the heart of that group and that they were willing to be creative and, and you know, show who Batgirl is as well as really helping this cause. I just thought it was really wonderful and, and how awesome that um, they tagged me and, and Batgirl the Oracle and, and different news sites have picked it up and, and now it's sort of trending because I know there is an Archie and Batman thing that was going on. So just uh, just wonderful how, how that happens. So uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, more interactions with that creative team and and just uh yeah i'm loving what it's like uh so far so I'm, I'm just so appreciative that they were willing to to do that and and do that four panel page in response to my challenge so yeah well, I do have some people who emailed from John Hall. He says, hello, Stella. I know it's most likely been forever since I chatted with you last. Still, just had to let you know I'm listening to BTO again after two years without it or other TBU podcasts for that matter. I'm in the military and was stationed in Korea for two years with the wife. We are actually expecting our first child, a daughter, which to my wife, a cast Kane and Batfan, we know what Harper's first Halloween costume will be when she's old enough. Whoa, so they're going to call her Harper. I wonder if it's because of Harper Rowe. You'll have to get back to me about that, John. Just wanted to say I dove back into BTO with the killing joke and you and Don made some valid points. And while I do tend to like Moore's work, I prefer a Swamp Thing run, which was part of Vertigo. I think the killing joke was a weird animal of a story. If it makes sense from a Joker perspective, it is an entertaining enough piece. But as far as what happens to Babs, more so than Jim, as we see Jim as a tough son of a gun, I could think of ways to do it differently being an aspiring writer myself that would wouldn't need such dark turns. Regardless, without the killing joke, for good or ill, we'd never have gotten the epicness of Oracle. Anyway, just wanted to let you know, as I reminded Don, I think you two did a bang-up job and have been listening since then, and I really want to read Ostrander's Suicide Squad now. I blame that partly on that thinly disguised Arkham-esque Suicide Squad film, which was way violent and more than a bit sexy in places, but ultimately it was a fun action movie piece to me. Enough rambling, however. I have dinner to make as my wife is now home. Keep up the good work, Stella. One of these years, hopefully I can meet up with Josh again, as well as you and Don, and others for the first time at a con, however far off that day might be. 
Well, thanks for writing in, John. Thank you so much for your service. Uh, my brother is also in the military, so I definitely know what that's like to have loved ones be away and just what it means to serve our country. And congrats on your future daughter. You're going to have to let me know if Harper is because of Harper Rowe, that new character in Batman. Uh, yeah, thanks for writing in about the killing joke. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you would think about how, how you would change it to not be as dark and, and crazy, especially to poor Babs. And yes, that new Suicide Squad film, uh, Batman Assault on Arkham, I watched it, and I do have to say that it was better than the the previous one, Justice League War, but it was like beyond violent, and yeah, it was a little sexed up compared to every every other film, and, and I feel like I just... Of, I, I usually recommend a lot of the previous ones to family friends, and that's just one that I would I would not recommend to be watched by by younger viewers. Well, from Adam Rogers, he says. First of all, I'd like to reword some of my statements in the last messages. I do not believe that Batman is insane or crazy. It would have been more accurate to say that his attempts to help the Joker were ridiculous. Sure, Batman has lots of problems, but I think he's found a good balance. Most of the time, anyway. Anyway, that scene in the hospital in Oracle Year One tugs at my heartstrings because, while I may not feel quite the same about the Batman-Joker laugh as you do, it was strange and embarrassing for Batman to do that. It sucks because, in a sense, Barbara is being unfair, but at the same time, she isn't. That's a very awkward situation for Batman and he probably just doesn't want to talk about it. But that's not entirely fair to Barbara because that kind of leaves her feeling that maybe Batman was laughing at her. But we know he wasn't. But it is still reprehensible for Batman to act like that in that situation. And I do think it's strange that she would know about that, especially since, in my opinion at least, they merely chuckled for a moment. But maybe the cops could see him grinning and shaking with laughter for a moment in their headlights. Maybe they reported to her father while he was visiting Barbara in the hospital and she overheard them. I also want to do a bit more Babs dick shipping. I was debating whether or not to save it for your next shipper special in February, but I figure I would just forget about it by then. The last two stories in Batman Beyond 2.0 feature Babs and dick shipping. If you haven't read those stories yet and don't want spoilers, then just skip the next two paragraphs. In the first two stories, Terry goes to the Justice Lord's timeline and we get to see what happens in the future of that story from the Justice League show. Both this and that story from the show are amazing, by the way. I agree. In this alternate future, Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson are married and had a son together. I was shocked at this and a little taken aback. I felt betrayed that all of the superheroes going rogue is what it would take to get those two together. They had a perfect relationship and everything. It's awesome, but it sucks that it's happening in an alternate timeline rather than the regular one. Back in the regular universe slash timeline, Dick accidentally sees that part of the playback from Terry's suit. Terry tries to keep him from seeing it, but fails and apologizes. Dick is initially shocked by this, but quickly shrugs it off and says that anything can happen in an alternate timeline, or something to that effect. In the second story, it flashes back to the aftermath of Return of the Joker after Tim Drake has been rescued and depicts Barbara yelling at Bruce as he sits in front of the back computer with no cowl and few days stubble on his chin. She throws her bat suit at him, proclaims that she quits and that their relationship is over. Bruce says he's sorry she feels that way and lets her storm off. This bothers me a bit, but at the same time, what else can he say? He was clearly uncomfortable with their relationship, as we can see in Mystery of the Batwoman. When she calls him and tries to get frisky with him, shiver, shiver, and he gets nervous and fakes static and hangs up on her. He obviously didn't like her that way and didn't know how else to get rid of her. He was obviously done with her already anyway, was afraid to break up with her. 
or so I surmise. Naturally, he doesn't care that she breaks up with him later, but it's hard to tell if he's referring to her breaking off a relationship or about her quitting as Batgirl. Hopefully just the latter. To be fair, he's in a really tough spot at this point and just doesn't know what to think anyway. Heck, this is basically the death of the family. Anyway, back to Dick and Babs. The next scene shows that Dick rushed home as soon as he could after he heard what happened with Tim and everything. He decides to stay in his loft in Gotham and give up protecting Bloodhaven, or as I call it, Bloodhaven, for a while, proclaiming that he doesn't know what he's going to do now, but that he wants to focus on the things and people important to him. Then he and Barbara share a kiss. Oh, what are your thoughts on all this? As far as I know, this is the most shipping we've gotten from these characters, other than the time they slept together the night before Dick and Starfire's wedding. Actually, I have an original, I think. It doesn't say it's collecting any issues on the back, and seems to have the same writer and artist throughout. Graphic novel called Nightwing, The Lost Year, which chronicles their history together. That's where I learned most of their history. I'd read about some of it on the Batman Universe podcast, but this was my first exposure to it. It's a nice little Dick and Bab shipping handbook. After reading it, I was even more shocked and confused as to why they are still not together. If you haven't read any of these stories, I strongly suggest that you do. That's Batman Beyond 2.0, number 17 to the present, and Justice League Beyond 2.0, 17 to 24. I was a bit lost starting the Justice Lord story until I read those issues, so I'd read the Justice League Beyond issues first. The ending is different in the Justice League book and the Batman Beyond book, but other than that, it's a really awesome story, and Nightwing, the lost year. Okay, well, lots of stuff to talk about here. I've actually not heard. Maybe I have. It sounds vaguely familiar, Nightwing the Lost Year. So I'd have to look at it and see if maybe I just had random issues from it or actually I've I've read it or I don't know. So thanks for pointing that out. I'll definitely have to put it on my list. Uh, besides, let's see. Well, I do love the fact that they're shipping. Uh, I think it is pretty interesting that they show in this alternate storyline what these two people are like and, and how their relationship potentially could have ended up. I feel like the same thing happened in Justice League, right? Where you really want Jon Stewart and Hawkgirl to get together and they're not together in Justice League Unlimited, but you know that in the future there is, obviously they are together in some respect because they have their son Warhawk. So I feel like it's almost the same thing that perhaps they're they're saying that you know this is what was meant to happen but they can only do it in in a different way they can't do it in the actual storyline as for the the mystery of the bat i mean to be honest i i really feel like it's weird i even talked about it on the previous show right where i the the untold legends of the batman just the fact that you know it's saying she had a crush on him i just feel like i don't know it's weird i i don't like it i feel like it's not really true to the character i don't think i I think she has admiration towards him and respects him but i don't think there's ever any romantic feelings and i think it's really strange i somewhat disagree with your point i i don't think it was one-sided if they were together i feel like He had some feelings for her. Yes, it's a little weird and mystery of the Batwoman and he doesn't like her, but I think something must have changed and they were dating because Babs is not a crazy psycho that, you know, she's writing his name in her notebook and he has no feelings for her whatsoever. So I feel like there was some sort of relationship, however much I don't like that. But I'll definitely have to read those issues to see because I've actually not read Batman Beyond uh, in a while. I was reading it and then and then dropped it. So I'll have to check that out and see what's going on there. But I- I'm glad to see that connecting it to the Return of the Joker storyline that there was a, a nice moment between Dick and Babs. 
and then you talk about you know the shipping and and other. I mean, you did talk about uh, Nightwing Annual Number Two where they slept together, but there there is actually a, a significant amount of shipping in her time as Oracle. Uh, it really starts with No Man's Land, and then it it really picks up after that, and and you see Dick a lot in Birds of Prey. I really recommend if you can find it, which you'll pay a pretty penny for it. Birds of Prey Number Eight, which really starts off a more serious relationship with them, and then she pops up in Nightwing as well. And then, of course, before the one year later timeline skip, uh, they were engaged to be married. So there is a lot more shipping out there. You've got to you kind of got to do your research um, in order to find those issues, which I have a a whole list of the issues that they sort of pop up in because at one time that's all I was looking for in back issues were issues that they they popped up in and there was some romance between them so yeah but thank you very much for Nightwing the last year I will definitely check that out and then Adam writes again and he says one more thing I just wanted to say that back when the new 52 started I was planning on reading Batgirl but as I heard the news for it on TBU and your podcast I started to think I didn't want to waste my time and money on it then my life got a bit crazy and I got behind on the podcast and the few comics I was reading at the time and by then I knew I wasn't going to waste my time and money on it. However, I was always happy to hear your rundowns and reviews even if I couldn't stand what was going on in the issues. Anyway, recently I've gotten back into reading more comics and am eagerly awaiting October and the new direction of Batgirl with the release of Batgirl number 35. I'm definitely going to pick that up. I do want to point out that when I first saw the new costume, the art made it look like she had blonde hair and she was definitely wearing a purple costume. So naturally I got my hopes up and thought it was Stephanie in the suit. Needless to say, I was slightly disappointed that it wasn't her. Steph is my favorite Batgirl after all, but Babs is a close second. But I still think I'll like the new direction. And really, I guess that Babs does deserve to have a chance to be portrayed better before we try to get Steph back in the cowl. Then again, how will that happen now? Surely we won't have another killing joke, but I guess she could retire after a nice long run. Longer than both Steph and Gil Simone's Batgirl at least. Maybe a good 40 more issues or so. Anyway, I'm eagerly awaiting this new direction and can't wait to start joining the discussion rather than just listening. Well, it's interesting you talk about Stephanie as Batgirl because we not, not we do not only see her, but Cass Kane as Batgirl as well in the future's end Batgirl issue, so I definitely recommend picking that up, because it was actually good, but I'm not re- uh, reviewing that in this issue. You talk about the blonde hair, like the coloring. I actually like that I could tell right away that it was Babs, and, and, and I felt like I didn't really see that it was blonde. I feel like it was closer to a strawberry blonde and more of a realistic tone for a redheaded person rather than the very comic booky, like almost fuchsia color that we've been seeing with Babs. So I actually appreciate that, but I could definitely see with, you know, the purple costume and everything, you know, is this Babs? But thanks again, Adam, for writing in. From a dedicated listener. Jacob, he says, just want to say thanks for your commitment to reading with Stella. I've thoroughly enjoyed this segment and I'll miss hearing it each month. I can't wait for the final installment and I hope re-recording was not too exhausting. On a scale of 1 to 10, how many bats would you give Batgirl to to Dare the Darkness, both as a piece of literature and as a story about Babs? Were the relationships between Batman, Robin, Babs, and Gordon up to your standards? Congrats on the 21,000 downloads in July. It just goes to show how hard work and devotion pays off. Sincerely, Jacob. Well, thanks, Jacob, for writing in. Uh, Yes, he says re-recording. I had this terrible... Here's another lesson I learned, listeners, is the fact that if you change the name, the file name of your Audacity 
recording, be sure that actually don't do it at all. I would really recommend the save as thing because because when the the file itself gets renamed, it does not carry over to the folder that all the information is stored in, and then things get really messed up. And I lost one of my episodes. I recorded an hour. I had a reading with Stella. I saved it. Something happened. It disappeared, even though I saved it. And it's because of this this naming issue. I was able after couple hours I was able to uh, I went to the gym and I was like because I was so frustrated I came back and I was able to find that one but I lost my last reading with cell recording because I ended up in the summer of recording the last three chapters back to back to back because I would have the voices in my head and everything and then just losing that last one that you know each of those last chapters took me 20 minutes to record super frustrated so I did have to record it again but it's done and hopefully we'll be okay um yeah, so skill 1 to 10, what would I give Batgirl this Dare the Darkness? Um, as a piece of literature, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not as, as good, I think, as, as some heroic tales that I've read, like Spider-Man novels or things like that. So I feel like it'd probably be, be in the 5 or 6 range. As a Barbara Gordon tale... I mean, she gets beat up a lot just, like, by Batman. And her journey is very interesting. You kind of see her going to her own. So maybe I would give it a 7 or an 8. But I still feel like it's a betrayal that it's not Barbara Gordon. It's, you know, Barbara Wilson. And, um, you know, at one point, the commissioner's talking to her and says that, I have a daughter your age. I mean, give me a break. So, yeah, I, I think as literature, it's it's not as good. I mean, you could read it in one sitting. Let's be honest, it's one of those bigger books. It's I, I think it's not meant to be this great work. It's supposed to be fun and just a tie into that. But, you know, as a Barbara tale, I think that you could you could potentially say it was maybe a seven or a seven and a half. Were the relationships between Batman, Robin, Babs, and Gordon up to your step? Batman is a jerk in that book, I have to say. And the way he is with all of his people. And, and there's a certain level, I think, that we can give him to being a jerk. Because he's only doing that for their protection. But just some of the things he says to Babs is really terrible. And then just Dick Grayson talking to Babs about his relationship with with uh, Batman and, and sort of hearing the same things. I feel like it's one of the worst descriptions and characterizations of Batman that we've seen. And I don't know if it comes directly from the movie adaptation because, I mean, Batman does, you know, shut Robin down on a couple accounts. And obviously you have that Poison Ivy thing, but Poison Ivy's not in here. So it's, I don't, I not up to my standards at all. Gordon's a fine, he's, he's okay. I mean, you don't see too much interaction, but he may be the m more solid of the characters. And it's interesting to see his interactions with the others. But I do like how Robin and, and Babs really come together and, and try to prove themselves and, and work together. I think those are the good, but then Batman's probably the ugly. Next from Angela. She says, wow, okay, so apparently Stella doesn't edit her listener mail. That's actually true. Because I don't get a lot of mail, if you email me, I'm probably going to read it. So unless you tell me, do not air, I'm probably going to read it. At all, she says. Instead, she reads every word, including the parts that say, don't read this on the podcast. <laughs> Wait, I don't remember that. I don't remember that, actually. To be fair, maybe she doesn't read the emails before recording the show. This is weird because it's talking in third person. I do read the emails before, but um, I feel like I'd have to reflect on what it was that said, don't read this on air. But if it was something that I felt was would be beneficial for listeners to hear, then 
you know, I, I'm going to read it. So I apologize. If it was something personal, I wouldn't have done it. But now I, I'm reflecting back and trying to figure out what it was. Uh, either way, in the future, I'll try to keep my fangirling and run on sentences to a minimum. And I'll have to avoid the temptation to trick Stella into saying things she would never say. Like, hello, Babs lovers. I, Stella, host of Backroll the Oracle. Oh, boy. The Barbara Gordon Podcast have come to the realization that Starfire is Dick Grayson's one true love. But since the Batgirl and Robin pairing work so well, I now officially ship Barbara and Damien. Yes, I do read ahead because Tom Panarese tried to trick me as well. But I'm afraid Starfire is not Dick Grayson's true love. And Barbara and Damien, that would be weird. Like, beyond weird. That's like Robin the Cradle style. I do somewhat ship Steph and Damien, though, to a certain extent, but I think they're better as, you know, siblings. You can kind of get that. Okay, okay. So I've got a real question this time. Listening to the archives, I heard an old piece of listener mail where the writer suggested you listen to the audio drama podcast, Batman, the Ace of Detectives. Did you ever check it out? I used to listen to that show back in the day, along with some other patio dramas about Superman, Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, and a bunch of other DC characters. It was a really good series with some epic Barbara Gordon moments, but then one day the shows disappeared. I still have a few MP3s left, but I've been trying to find episodes for years, especially of the Green Arrow shootings oh especially the green arrow shooting star show that i never got the chance to listen to fly on fellow babs lovers angela well angela again i apologize for not cutting your email where you told me to cut it but again you know if i felt like it was something good to be said on on air then i said it i do pre-read just you know so i know what's going on of course it it hits editing as well i I n did not check out Batman the Ace of Detectives. I may have way back when. I don't know when that episode was that you're talking about. And uh, only listened to a couple. Um, and then perhaps didn't for the rest. I remember listening to some No Man's Land audio adaptations. But maybe... Maybe I didn't get around to Batman the Ace of Detectives. I am not sure. I wonder if I could find those. I mean, you said that it disappeared, but perhaps there's some trace of something left. But no, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that I, I had no idea there were other audio dramas, uh, especially about Martian Manhunter and Green Arrow. I mean, kind of, not, I shouldn't say lower tier, but, you know, characters that are not in the big three, like Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. So maybe I'll try to find these. And see if any remnants remain. Oh, I see that there's a, um, on Podbean. It seems like they may have it. I'll have to check it out, though. Okay, well, that is it for my emails. Thank you so much for writing in. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about the show or about what's going on, you can certainly email me at backrolloracle at gmail.com. And then if you put something on Facebook as well, I'll, I'll be sure to check that out too. Well, we did our, you know, our Oracle Year 1, which was a little out of sequence, but we wanted her origin story. But now we're actually going to start to see how she first started appearing in these issues. So now we're just jumping into Suicide Squad. And I just want to give you a little bit of background on Suicide Squad. There was one uh, way back when in the late 50s. And it's sometimes known as Task Force X. 
But this one we're talking about is actually the more modern Suicide Squad that was created by jo John Ostrander in Legends Number 3. And it's basically an anti-hero team of incarcerated supervillains who act as deniable assets for the United States government. They undertake high-risk black ops missions in exchange for commuted prison sentences, or basically time off or time potentially served. The group operates at a Belle Reve penitentiary under the direction of Dr. Amanda Waller. So the Suicide Squad existence helps to explain why many convicted villains in the DC Universe roam free without having heroes track them down until they inevitably attempt or commit another crime. So we've sort of seen this in Marvel with Dark Avengers. We saw how you know Norman Osborn was ahead of that. So similar idea if, if you're not used to the suicide, suicide Squad. And of course New 52 has revamped it. They've, they have a Suicide Squad going on now. But this is, uh, we could almost say, the original even though it's not really the original the original modern the modern original does that work so let's see how Babs pops up into these so first issue of Suicide Squad is Suicide Squad number 23 Weird War Tales the cover date was 1989 writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale penciler Luke McDonald inker Carl Story colorist Mark Chiarello now this story takes place during Invasion, which was a three-issue comic book limited series and crossover event that was published in uh, 1988 to 1989 by DC. And uh, basically it ties up many plot lines from uh, different uh, Keith Giffen created DC series like Omega Man, Justice League International, Legion of Superheroes. Uh, so this was, um, this was basically a tie-in issue, right? Which was kind of hard being like a first-time reader and you pick up a tie-in issue, I wouldn't recommend it. But the Suicide Squad during the invasion went to Russia to help fight the Okarans. And the stories involved, right, these weird war stories uh, involve Amanda Waller talking to various characters, and they're all in her head, that she blames in a foul-up that happened in one of these missions. Bronze Tiger speaks of the action in Russia. Nemesis talks about Captain Boomerang's short return to Australia. So what does Babs do in this issue? So she actually, well, I should say, what does Oracle do? Let's pretend we don't know that Oracle is Barbara Gordon. So Oracle contacts Flo, who happens to be the computer technician for the Suicide Squad and who also has a huge crush on the Bronze Tiger and happens to be the niece of Amanda Waller. So Flo is basically bemoaning the fact that Bronze Tiger doesn't like her and he's, he's all about the sexy vixen. And she's talking to the computer screen when Oracle pops on and says hello I am Oracle is anyone present that's it one panel that's all she does so basically it's a mystery we don't know who Oracle is almost like a weird thing like this girl's complaining and then this happens and that's it so I don't know if a modern reader I feel like if we were to read something like that now we'd be like what the heck is that? What's going on? So a little strange, and it's a mystery. I'm not even going to rate that. So I'm going to go into the next issue, Suicide Squad number 24, Slings and Arrows. September, I'm sorry, the cover date was February 1989. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale. Penciler Luke McDonald, inker Carl Story, and colorist Carl Gafford. 
Amanda Waller is under investigation by the Senate subcommittee due to the deaths of Senator Joe Cray and his assistant Derek Tolliver, uh, both of whom were killed by a renegade dead shot. Uh, not too clear on what happened in this particular story, but that's what in the previous issue Amanda Waller is pretty upset about this entire thing, and, and she's sort of talking to different voices in her head. So, not sure what actually happened. We know that Deadshot killed them, even though she told him to protect them. It was very interesting. So, just, that's kind of the background as far as I know it. Before the investigation actually begins, we see Waller meeting with the Suicide Squad and debriefing them on a mission so that they cannot be found and summoned in front of the committee. Nemesis leaves, even though Waller threatens him, and while others consider doing the same thing, they end up staying. The mission is in the country of Ogaden in East Africa, which has been at civil war for over 20 years. Global relief efforts have been headed up by Sister Agnes Martinen, but she has been taken by the former leaders, the Renamos family. The mission is to bring back the nun alive. Later, Waller goes to talk to Flo and checks to see if Oracle has reestablished contact. They interface the phone with the computer and Oracle speaks to Waller. Waller wants to know who Oracle is, how he slash she cracked into their system, and what he slash she wants. Oracle responds that he slash she is very good with computers and can get into many places and that he slash she should just be thought of as, well, part of the team. Waller wants some more information, but Oracle is tight-lipped. He slash she tells them to leave a message in their database if they need information, and don't blame Flo for not being able to track him slash her down. After Oracle disconnects, Waller demands to know more about him slash her, and will only use him slash her on Waller's terms. She tells Flo to set up a virus for Oracle. Later, another colleague, psychologist Simon Legrieve, decides to leave as well because he is unhappy with how the members of the squad are seen as disposable. He is also threatened by Waller. I guess that's, that's just how she shows her love. We then see Amanda in the committee and the squad in Africa witnessing many tragedies, but uh, they do not find the nun. And next up, CO Trouble, which I'm actually not going to cover, so I, I don't know what happens, but we'll be back. So let me tell you, it's very interesting popping in as a new reader to Suicide Squad and trying to pick up these storylines. For the most part, I know the characters, but there are some like Nemesis on that too, and Nightshade and Duchess I'm not too familiar with, so it's interesting seeing these new people. Of course, just trying to figure out what the storyline is. I guess that's one of those things where, you know, if you were really dedicated, which I'm, I'd say that I'm pretty dedicated, but, you know, you would read the entire, you know, 1 through 22 to get a sense of what was going on and, and what happened with this Cray Tolliver incident. But right now we're just sort of filling in the gaps. And it's kind of interesting, though, just to pop in because you kind of feel that mystery that I feel like readers would feel in 1989. So I think the idea just of, of the suicide itself, which, you know, I've been, I've known about it for a while. I knew about it. I, I guess I was introduced to it in the Justice League animated story with Task Force X, the um, episode there. And, you know, then they popped up in Smallville and now they, they appeared in Arrow. So they've been around more. They've been getting popularity. And I think it's a very interesting idea, just the fact that you have these villains and um, you're controlling them. I wonder if in 1989, Ostrander did it where there is a chip implanted in their brainstem and so that, you know, if they go rogue, they'd be killed. But you wonder if that were true, then why wasn't Deadshot killed before he killed um, the senator? But just the fact that they are given a chance at 
reducing their time and serving the government on kind of these black ops missions or missions that people of the government only a few members may know of and uh yeah so it's it's shady yeah i think it's really shady and and amanda waller you can kind of get the sense of who she is from these issues and and i think she has to be this way and very threatening because she has to have this control over her team of i mean villains my goodness but it is i think a good way to explain you know why do we have these bad guys running around gotham and central city all these different places and not being caught and i guess there is some sort of tacit agreement though i do feel like there are some heroes out there that even if they heard hey they're in the suicide squad they wouldn't agree with the situation they would be like why what are you doing these are dangerous villains but i I think it is a very interesting idea so i've been enjoying reading it albeit somewhat confused because i have hopped in I love uh, just seeing the interactions between the different members, getting a sense at how they relate together, um, are the, what their relationships are like, as well as members interacting with Waller. And I think that's really when you get a good sense of who Waller is, just in these two issues. I mean, the previous issue, I think that was a really great scene with, with Waller just driving a car and she's talking to herself, but these different characters are really the, the manifestation of her thoughts so they're in the passenger seat and she's talking to them but she's really talking to herself and and they're all people that she may blame for what happened obviously she's really very much at fault so i think she's trying to cast the blame but she's in a very stressful situation and position as well and then in this issue you really see her under pressure due to the investigation and people especially on her team questioning her motives and actions and just the suicide squad in general i mean as an American, if you heard that there was this sort of squad around, I, I feel like we would be up in arms as well. Even though hopefully we would assume good intent and, and have good faith, I, I think that there is a question of what are you thinking? There are these dangerous people on this team. And obviously you can see that she doesn't accept people leaving because she threatens Nemesis, she threatens the psychologist, and previous to that, the psychologist's partner, which you saw in issue 23, wants to leave as well because she just doesn't like the way that these team members are handled. And I think that's great because through the doctors that are helping while are out through their perspective you see that waller is really using these villains as weapons but these doctors i think are, are really casting a more human light on them and the fact that they are people and yeah they've done bad things but now you're treating them in a in a terrible way and they're just cannon fodder as as are the words that they had been used so just i think really interesting themes that have come up and and something that i've been able to even as a first reader pull out so let's talk about Oracle. Uh, it's just really interesting to see Oracle's first scenes in these issues. You know, in 1989, if I were a reader, I feel like I would honestly have no idea who this person was. I, I like the air of mystery about the whole thing and how Oracle just pops up suddenly and wants to help. And, you know, of course, Waller needs to be in control. So not knowing is, is really going to eat her up. And you do wonder, can Oracle actually be trusted? Who is this person? And I think at that time, you could certainly be mistrustful of Oracle and, and perhaps see oracle as uh you know maybe turning into a bad guy and and just using all that information and and tearing down the suicide squad or could you know oracle be a vigilante like batman and and know what's going on and disagree with everything that's going on and and want to tear down the 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 squad from the inside who knows but uh i I do like you know waller thinks she can use oracle on her own terms but but really you know 
I think not even knowing who Oracle is at the time, it, it seems like a very naive statement for Waller to say, you know, I will use Oracle, but on my terms. I think even in 1989, I'd be like, oh, Waller, I don't think you know what you're getting into. But uh, I'm liking it. Obviously, better than the previous issue, which was just one panel, and now you're just getting in more, and, and now Oracle wants to be a member of the team, maybe has started a relationship with Flo. Uh, so we'll get to see what that interaction is like. And uh, no pictures right now no image of oracle that we've i feel like we know and uh is very popular so we'll see how it all uh, gets bigger so i think i'm gonna give this an 8 out of 10 uh just an interesting mysterious introduction to oracle and and i really liked the great interactions between waller and the other characters well that's it for my oracle and my vintage comics Hopefully next time we'll have bigger appearances by Oracle and maybe I will better understand what's going on in the storyline. But uh, when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl 34 and Birds of Prey 34. But first we have Zias' Radio Hour featuring New Divide by Linkin Park. Talk to you guys later.
Welcome back. I just watched a a man in a motor-powered wheelchair cross six lanes of traffic at night. I'm not really sure what he was thinking or where he was going. Since I just came from the gym, there wasn't, I mean, I'm not really sure what's over there for him. But uh, it, was, it was very dangerous to watch this all unfold and him going... Luckily, there was a red light on cross traffic. I don't even know how he got a green. But anyways, let's get to these reviews, shall we? We're getting to the end. This is the penultimate issue of Gail Simone's run. We have Batgirl number 34, Crash and Burn. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Fernando Persarin, inkers Jonathan Glapion and Matt Ryan, colorist Blonde. On her own private yacht, Sharice Carnes is unconcerned by the news that Batgirl has caught up to her. Batgirl is disgusted by Sharice's use of her wealth to promote a deadly kind of vigilantism that kills. While Barbara is no fan of crime, murdering every criminal in the city is, uh, well, not the way to get rid of crime. And so she's decided to bring Sharice down tonight with the help of Black Canary and, of course, Huntress. She's also enlisted the help of her old school friend slash rival slash roommate, Muni, that we met before, now a black ops agent called Obscura, with the knowledge that her help comes at the cost of having to work for her in the future. Seeing Batgirl and her team speeding toward them in a boat, Charisse has Gretel try to sink it with a rocket launcher. Anticipating the attack, Black Canary climbs out onto the bow of the boat and uses her canary cry until the rocket detonates safely out of range. The three passengers climb up the side of the yacht as Gretel destroys the boat. And of course, well, Batman's going to be pretty upset about this. Charisse then initiates Operation Rebirth as she sneaks off to put on her uniform while Bonebreaker and Gretel face the intruders. Bonebreaker warns that this plan has been in the works for years. Mercenaries from around the world have been recruited to accomplish in one night what the Bat family hasn't been able to do since they started. She reminds them that they were all warned to leave the city. Anyone who remains will die. Batgirl smiles, whispering the code word Gargoyle to Obscura, enacting her own countermeasures. At his home in Cherry Hill, Ricky, our, our beloved Ricky, hears the mercenaries coming for him and warns his mother that they have to leave. They're too slow to prevent a thug from kicking down the door, and in order to protect his mother, he tackles the man, despite the fact that he is unarmed and, well, he's on two legs. I guess he has a prosthetic now, but... Who knows? Unfortunately, the thug kicks him in the gut and he collapses. Angrily, his attacker turns to his mom. Fortunately, the attacker is suddenly clubbed into unconsciousness by, well, guess what? Lieutenant McKenna of the GCPD, who hurriedly guides Ricky and his mother to safety with the warning that the city is now dangerous. Unwilling to let Bonebreaker's brutality against Ricky and his brother Rolo go unpunished, Batgirl uses her friend's help to her advantage and knocks her unconscious with the section of pipe. Accompanied by several armed guards and grotesque, Charisse emerges from the cabin as nightfall, warning that Batgirl's enlisting the police will be of little help against all the metahumans that she has hired. Becker responds that she has metahuman friends as well, and after hacking Nightfall's system, she was able to overcome her Project Nomad by attacking every one of her cells at once. Knowing that fighting Charisse will only make her even more mad, Barbara takes a different tactic, reaches for a photo in her belt, and she holds it up in Charisse's face, explaining that it is a photo of her family, as we can see. Uh, and they would probably not approve of what she's doing now, since Charisse watched them murdered, and if they're watching her, they would see Charisse murdering hundreds of other people. All of Nightfall's data has been made public, 
Her coup is now over, and Becker is sure that Charisse barely understands what she's done, so she offers her understanding as Charisse removes her mask to reveal her tears. As a reward for helping to show her the light, Charisse warns that Barbara's brother, James, is still alive. Barbara isn't a killer after all, which shocks Barbara more than makes her happy. And realizing that she isn't who she thought she was, Barbara lets out a, a scream of delight. She still has a chance to be the Barbara Gordon that she wants to be. Returning to her apartment, Barbara finds her roommate Alicia asleep on the couch, clutching a baseball bat to protect herself. Perhaps it's the same bat that Jada Pinkett Smith uses. And when she wakes up, Babs makes a decision to start fresh. The time has come for her to leave Cherry Hill and start over elsewhere, and she offers her friend the chance to come with her. And Alicia hugs her, which we can assume that she's agreeing to everything. Next up... One last epilogue, five years later, has Barbara become her own worst nightmare, Future's End. Well, certainly an interesting end to this whole Nightfall saga. And if you think about it, this whole thing has been going on for a very long time, at least a year, with little seeds here and there. And of course, we've had some of the disgrace pop up in, in year one of this new run. So it's been going on almost, you could say, from the beginning. It's pretty interesting in the beginning how calm everyone is, especially Charisse. I mean, they're all drinking champagne, and even Gretel, who picks up a glass as she prepares to shoot this bazooka. So everyone's celebrating, and, and even when Batgirl's coming, no one's worried at all, which I, I feel like is a little bizarre. Gretel suddenly talks normally, uh, whereas in the past she has talked, not really in rhymes, but just very hard to understand. You could tell that she was... I, it almost seemed like she was high, just a very crazy person. Uh, we didn't really understand what she was saying, but apparently she's okay now, or at least something has changed in the writing. I like how Batgirl, Huntress, and Canary are working together. And look how quickly Batgirl took to Huntress, even in her internal monologue, talking about her and, and also just talking about how, how great it is for her to work with Black Canary again and, and how she trusts her and respects her. I liked when the uh, the Batboat got blown up and, and she says, uh, Bab says that, you know, she knows how upset Bruce is going to be because he loved that boat. So Ricky has a second leg. We can assume that it's probably a prosthetic. It really doesn't appear to be a prosthetic. If you look at the art, uh, it certainly seems like it's it's moving and he's moving as if he has a real leg and I do wonder when all of this happened because I feel like the last time we saw him he was still in the hospital so that's an interesting development that sort of happened in off panel land I like that Ricky protects his mother and how how ironic that McKenna saves him since he knocked her out several issues ago which she actually brings up which I thought was great Becker again takes Ricky's problems at the hand of Bromebaker personally calling him her boyfriend which again I take issue with just because I mean didn't she not return his calls say they weren't dating she was upset that he was suing her father all of this stuff but you know she's so wishy-washy and I, I can't follow what's going on but yeah you know it, it's as if they seriously are dating and and almost like my goodness family because of everything her Ricky and Rolo she just takes it all out on Bonebreaker Charisse knows about Michael betraying them, and he's not found at all in this issue, and I would actually like to know where he is right now and what happened to him. I think that would be pretty interesting, but I guess that's the last of him, which I guess is fine, but I think for this story 
and, and the purposes of the story and what had happened, it'd be interesting to see where he went and how everything wrapped up there. My major issue with Charisse and, and this story, in fact, is just her motives and the fact that she wants Gotham safe for its citizens. And I can certainly see hiring mercenaries to take care of the bad people of the city, but what about using a bunch of villains? I mean, aren't they exactly the type of people that Charisse wants to get rid of? And how can she be sure that they will be controlled and not kill innocent people? So I, I just feel like that's a confusion of the character and what her initial purpose was and perhaps a fault in the writing there. We, we see a bunch of characters, obviously. We, we see many villains. We see many heroes. One character I, I did look at uh, was Caitlin Fairchild, um, who's actually a Wildstorm character, in case you were wondering about that. And she turned up in in Gen 13, and she's actually the daughter of Alexander Fairchild, who was a member of Team 7. So I did do some research there. Uh, she was basically, I think, the only character that I wasn't too sure about who that was. But we see people from the movement, which I think is logical, given the fact that Gil Simone wrote that book. We see people from Teen Titans. We see Misfit, who, again, uh, I think maybe people had taken offense that Cassandra Kane did not pop up but they used misfit of all people and again i feel like because gil simone is writing it and that is a gil simone character it makes sense that she pops up i'm not a fan of misfit so frankly i mean i could have done without her but but what have you and and it's interesting because many of these it, it's implied that they have a connection with obscura and i wonder how they have a connection how obscura was able to contact them how do they know they're is it just her position in the black ops that she knows all these people? Is there some sort of list of, of metahumans and, and superheroes that Obscura has? That's something that is very interesting. I just wonder how such a huge call was able to be put out. And was it too big a call? I mean, it was necessary to take down all these different remote operation points at the same time. I to totally understand that, but wouldn't it have been awesome to just keep it in the Bat family and maybe use Batman Inc. or something like that, but instead we really are branching out and using uh, wildly different team members and people that we haven't necessarily seen or seen working together. So is this the right direction to go or is it not? So Charisse is actually surprised when Batgirl says she cracked her system. And I like that something was actually explained and it, it made sense. After all, it's a, it's a pretty big detail as to how she was able to learn big details of Charisse's plan besides Michael, of course, elaborating on certain points. And they do take the mercenaries out of the equation. So I'm glad that that whole situation was explained. So there was one section where, where Bab says, you know, she at one point in time could have been Charisse could have fallen down that path and you know I wonder and I even ask you listeners do you think that that is uh, believable do you think she was close to being Charisse uh, I, I think in past months quite recently we've seen Babs go down these dark paths and, and really lose control and tell herself she needs to stop losing control I think really the catalyst was the quote death end quote of her brother but I mean, the tragedy that has... I just wonder what this tragedy is. Because we know that Teresa's family was just... was, was taken away from her, obviously, and, and killed and murdered right in front of her. And 
what would be that comparative tragedy for Babs? Would it have been the killing joke? Uh, would it have been stuff with James Jr., her mom walking away? I mean, to a certain extent, she still has her family. It's just that her, her family unit is is very much uh, separated, but they are still alive, and I feel like tragedy didn't strike them in the same way that Cherise did. And they have the same means and motives. You know, they want to clean up the city. I guess just Cherise, because she had mentors in Blackgate, she grew up in that way, whereas the influence that Babs had were was, or were, I suppose, her father and, of course, Batman. So I guess there are some similarities. I, I just feel like there's a bit of a stretch to say that they are similar and that Babs could have been there. But perhaps, you know, if Babs, I don't know, if she was raised in Blackgate, do you think it still would have happened? But I think still with the strong influence, I think you got to take out her entire family, and, and that's where the problem lies is because... Babs still has a strong family unit, at least with her father, and Sharice has none of that. So, it's interesting. Yeah, just uh, let me know what you guys think about that. Do you think it's believable? Uh, I do like that Batgirl gets fed up with Grotesque and hits him. She basically just tells him to shut up. And, uh, my goodness, I've been waiting for, like, 20 issues for her to do that. So, it's finally done. Then we talk about Sharice and, and her murdered family. And I remember in the beginning when this was brought out, it was, it was ambiguous because you wonder, did Sharice actually do this? And, you know, she's put away, of course. And then it comes back and you, you it kind of seems like, but I feel like it's still not 100% definite that this guy, her, her boyfriend had murdered them. And then, you know, that's really when she cracked. It's just interesting that this is the point we've, we, we use it. It's almost come full circle. It's created her and now it's ended her. And... To be honest, I I don't think that it's believable that just a photograph was able to break Sharice down. I mean, they have been there in her mind for her entire life since they were murdered. This was her whole goal to do this. So why would, I mean, in a sense, I feel like seeing that photograph would, would harden her resolve that this is why I'm doing that, Batgirl. This is why I want to take down the crime from Gotham City, not oh, what have I done, what have I done? So I, I feel like, you know, all of a sudden we, we want to feel sorry for this character, and I just want a villain because I think she's been that villain the entire time, and she's wanted to clean up the city but has done it in very shady ways, and now we see what she's been doing. Now she's brought in, you know, all the Kill Croc, we've seen Clayface. So, I mean, let's be honest, I, I think she needed to be a villain and not have this turnaround, and I don't think this photograph would have done that. Batgirl suddenly doesn't want to fight her. I don't think that's believable either. I think Batgirl would be really incensed at what is going on uh, to her city, and she would take Sharice down. I mean, look what she did to Bonebreaker. I mean, this is personal for her. And then, you know, she believes Sharice doesn't understand what she's done. Sharice may be crazy, but she knows perfectly well what she is doing. So, uh, the entire ending, and just Sharice, her motives, using these supervillains, and then the end with how Nightfall ends up, I, I just think it was unfortunately poorly done. And, you know, I feel like we should have just kept with her being a really solid villain. I should say solid as in like a villain through and through. And Batgirl takes her down with righteous vengeance. Sharice hugs Batgirl and reveals that James is alive. My goodness. And then Babs just trusts apparently that she'll recover from whatever ails her. It's just really bizarre. It's, it's super like 
180 that that doesn't really make sense to me and and doesn't really fit and and I think it it's it's not the best way to end this story. So there is some celebration which while awkward just her screaming, you know, to the sky. Um I guess we can allow cuz Batgirl has gone through a lot of stuff. Then Alicia is at home, the door is locked and I'm a little surprised she's not somewhere more secure. But then, you know, let's talk about Babs looking for a new start. So she which, you know, I think quite right. She she realizes that she's not who she thought she was and, and now she can really just start over someplace but she needs to leave this area because I think it symbolizes a lot of stuff that she's been through and think of all the bad stuff that she's gone through and it really related to Cherry Hill and that location and everything. But if she wants a new start, why does she have to take a leash with her? Why can't she like be like full separation from this girl and really start off on her own and try to have a more stable life and then maybe invite Alicia in from the outskirts but apparently we got to take her with us uh you know I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10 I I do think that there are some good moments which you know I said I, I pulled them out and I'm certainly happy that Babs decides to start new for the third time this run probably because boy has she said I'm going to be a new person rather than she put on her black clothing I'm going to be a new person yeah it's let's actually see it this time but I just don't like how the battle with Charisse ends and I don't think it's believable yeah just some problems I think major problems there so 7 out of 10 bats next up we have the final regular issue of Birds of Prey. That's Birds of Prey number 34, Things Fall Apart. Writer Christy Marks, Pencil Robson Rocha, Breakdown Scott McDaniel, Inker Eau Claire Albert, and Colorist Chris Sotomayor. Amanda Waller has promised to tell Black Canary the ugly truth about her husband, knowing that this conflict would come eventually. She explains that Kurt Lance had never loved Dinah the way she loved him. He hadn't considered marriage until something changed his mind. He came to Amanda after the briefing for their Gamora mission and set up a quick clandestine marriage. He had thought that they would all die on the mission and the marriage wasn't meant to last. He had done it for her because he wanted Dinah to die happy. Meanwhile, the battling Birds of Prey and Suicide Squad are attacked by a third group of angry terrorists, requiring the metahumans to band together and protect their target, Dr. Mamberti. Dinah believes Amanda's story and fights her, prompting Amanda to comment that she is fighting like a rabid dog. Her rage seems unusual, given that Amanda can tell that Dinah knows she is a line. Collapsing in tears, Dinah admits how Regulus used Kurt's body and bringing him back to life from that coma damaged his brain. He doesn't remember who she is or was. Amanda explains that the resurrection process wiped his memory long before Regulus got hold of him. She had wanted to spare Dinah the pain, and so she had let her believe he was dead. Offering her hand, Amanda suggests they let Kurt decide where he belongs. The pair return to their teams, insisting that there is no further need to fight. Amanda takes her team and leaves, leaving Batgirl to demand what that had been about. Dinah explains the shared history on Team 7 between her, Amanda, and Kurt, adding that she is to set up a neutral meeting so Amanda can seek her for herself. Bitterly, Batgirl comments that the rest of the team has earned the right to be present at that same meeting. Soon they are all back in Gotham City, and Dinah allows Amanda to meet with Kurt, who doesn't remember her. She reveals to him a bit of their history and offers him the chance to receive the rehabilitative care he needs and the freedom he wants. Dinah admits that while she doesn't want him to go, she will not stand in his way. After a moment of thought, Kurt accepts Amanda's offer, and they leave immediately. Dinah is hurt that he doesn't even say goodbye, realizing that even the chance to choose couldn't awaken feelings for her and him. 
Becker is unsympathetic, though, explaining that when Dinah kept her in the dark on all of this, it jeopardized a life and damaged their trust. Angrily, she states that she is done with both the birds of prey and Dinah, intent on returning to her own life in Gotham. Frustrated and hurting, Dinah flies away, but hey, guess what? The creeper condor chases after her. But before he flies off, Batgirl warns that Dinah had used him too. But hey, guess what? He's willing to forgive her, of course. And when he catches up to Dinah, he promises that they don't have to commit to anything for now. They can just fly. Turning to Strix, Batgirl admits that she hasn't been as good a friend to her as she thought she was. The team wasn't enough for her, but Babs can't afford to drag her into her own life. Mother Eve interjects that she will take Strix in, with access to biotech that can provide her with a voice. Strix will have much to do there. Somewhat sadly, Babs agrees and hugs her friend, suggesting that next time they see each other, she should tell her everything she never could. Despite this parting of ways, Mother Eve is aware that the future holds more for the birds of prey in one form or another, but things are going to get worse before they get better. Next, five years later, Canary's Red League of Assassins, Futures End. So, issues and years of the mystery of Kurt Lance, and this is what we are given. That he thought their days were numbered, and he wanted to make Dinah happy, so he married her? I mean, talk about a letdown. What's beyond? I mean, after all of this, the the finding out that she murdered her husband, then finding out he's alive, then finding out that he can be resurrected to a certain extent, and then he doesn't remember her. All of this, like all of this love that she showed him, and all of this angst that she has shown, and anger. Oh my goodness. He didn't really love her as much as she loved him and, and just, you know, thought they were going to die, so let's get married. I hate the way Dinah is blaming Waller for everything, you know, for wanting her husband and keeping him. It, it makes her seem, I think, weak rather than just angry. And then she just breaks down, she stops fighting, and then she accepts a deal from Waller. I mean, it feels like it's bam, 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 and, and just way too soon. But I just think it's... I don't know. Whenever a woman says, like, you kept him from me, you wanted him for yourself, in a certain, you know, there are some cases that, yes, that is true, but it just feels like a desperate cry from a woman who has lost something that she really loves and is reaching out and wanting to blame anyone that she can. And it's just super frustrating to see, you know, such a great character like Dinah Lance in this vulnerable position. I think the big reveal is that Kurt was messed up all along from the time he was resurrected, and boy, would that have saved the readers and Dino some pain. <laughs> Maybe we could have just, like, I don't know, not ha had to go through the Rachel Ghoul stuff or the Regulus stuff. Maybe if Amanda Waller had kept better tabs on the body, it would have been better and then been more open to Dinah. Maybe this would have been better, but guess not. I like that the Suicide Squad and the birds team up, as it was inevitable, I'd say, and the splash page of them working together was great. But, you know, again, we have a contradiction, and the one that has plagued me this entire book, I would say. Since Batgirl, moments before, she was very disappointed with Strix for killing the Warlord, which was repeated a couple times in the previous issues, and then the squad is basically mowing down the group of of mercenaries or hired guns that's coming for them but Batgirl doesn't say anything about that she's completely fine with them backing her up so I do have and take issue with that I like that Batgirl distrusts Canary now but was the final conversation between the two too heavy 
I, I think Batgirl was right in saying everything she said, but could she have been more supportive and at least, I don't know, helped Dinah out in the end? Um, because I feel like at the root of this, they were friends and then they were teammates. And while she betrayed her as a teammate, could she have been with her and supported her as a friend? You know, said I... I I kind of think about Laguna Beach and I guess it was really the hills when Elsie um says to Heidi I <laughs> I will forgive but I will never forget. So I just feel like, you know, now is the time to while you're giving tough medicine, can you still support her? But I I do think that, you know, she's right in this fact, but will she ever forgive her? And then she quits. And, you know, is that the right way to go out? And I am disappointed in that, just Batgirl doing that, because I feel like that's just quitting. And, and I feel like you can go away angry, and you can take time for yourself, but you're leaving the team vulnerable, and really, I mean, that's the first, that is it. I mean, once she leaves, you lost your leader, you lost ties um, to many things. And she even says, you know, I didn't want to be on this team in the first place, and which is true, because remember, she didn't really... Uh, want to be associated with the people that were on the team but she stayed with it and I think she really came on top and and now this and just kind of tears down the character in this book and and just like it's unfortunate to see Batgirl just turn away from her friend from the team and be like I'm done with this I'm washing my hands of it so a bit of a bummer there is it true that Bab should have understood Dinah's methods and motives because Dinah says, you know, of all people, I thought that you would have understood. And I wonder, you know, is she relating this to James Jr., to what has been going on in Eternal, maybe, which I'm not really sure how the timeline actually aligns. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that Barbara Gordon should have been more understanding? I, I certainly think that she should have tried to have been more supportive of her friend. But, you know, lying and putting many people's lives on the line and all for this is that something that Batgirl would have done and I think you know Gail Simone's Batgirl yes I think we've seen it before how desperate she can get I think we've seen it in Eternal where she's super desperate because her father is in prison and she's trying to solve um, the mystery of of what made him shoot and and that train derailment and all, all those sorts of things so i think given the state of barbara gordon now and how she's being written i think that is probably true the way dinah says it is almost as if like she's grasping for straws and, and very pathetic in the way she says it but possibly just the way we've seen Barbara Gordon right now in New 52 that maybe she should have understood because she has in fact been there though she hasn't necessarily been there in the Birds of Prey title so you really have to distance yourself from that question you have to say can the Barbara Gordon of Batgirl understand I do wonder what the future of Dinah and Babs is because it's sad I love this relationship I've loved it pre-New 52 since Birds of Prey and it's just I feel like just an awesome relationship between uh, two female characters and you know best friends and and we haven't really seen that sort of relationship or you know platonic chemistry between the two of them in the new 52 and now I'm afraid that 
I mean, where are they gonna see each other again? Babs is starting new. Dinah is off on her own, doing whatever. Who knows if she's gonna pop up? So, uh, this is a bit of a bummer. And then Waller offers Kurt a job to actually be a useful human being. And, I mean, did Dinah actually think he would choose her? Give me a break. What also bothers me is the fact that Kurt gets a future, and I can only assume will appear in Suicide Squad, but the birds are donezo. And readers of Suicide Squad now will have to let me know if Kurt actually does pop up there. But that's it. Our team is done. Condor and Canary fly off, and frankly, it makes me sick that he nearly acts like Green arrow any ladybird pretty bird that comes out of somebody's mouth that's green arrow that should not be used for anybody else and strix goes with mother eve who's going to grant her a voice and you know what i can accept that to be honest but i just thought man this is such a bad ending i mean is there closure maybe but the group doesn't really leave amicably and batgirl seems in a really bad way i mean look at her face on that last page the team didn't break up it was destroyed and there is just little chance of of a reparation and such a bummer to end on this note so i'm going to give it six out of ten birds which perhaps is the lowest that i've given this book so sad to see it go and sad to see it go in this way next up we have chris with the batman 66 review Hi everybody welcome to the batman 66 review segment glad you could make it thanks for downloading i'm glad to be with you today and as always thanks for not fast forwarding i'm chris and this is the segment where i review the batman 66 title we're up to issue number 14 which was cover dated october 2014 for hard copy release this was originally released in download format the cover art was done by Michael and Laura Allred. Our story this issue is entitled The Bat Robot Takes Flight and is written by Jeff Parker and with art by Paul Ravoche and Craig Russo. Nighttime in Gotham City. And before the Clock King can make off with stolen artwork, he and his henchmen are thwarted by a giant bat robot. A giant bat robot? Batman and Robin arrive on the scene, and Batman explains to Commissioner Gordon and to Chief O'Hara that the Bat-Robot was created by Professor Overbeck, and that the robot, equipped with an array of crime-fighting weapons, has a computer brain loaded with data based on the scenarios on how Batman would react in any given situation. Louis the Lilac is the next villain to be stopped by the Bat-Robot, and then the Archer. With the Bat-Robot able to patrol Gotham City 24 hours a day, Bruce and Dick take in some fishing in a diggy named Old Chum no less, and are met there by Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara who are fishing themselves. A clue of a riddle written on a playing card points to the Hall of Records. A riddle being the trademark of the Riddler, and a playing card the sign of a Joker confuses the Bat-Robot. Which villain is there? Both of them! The two villains manage to use a crane with a magnet to seize the Bat-Robot and to swing the robot into the wall of the Savings and Trust building next door. However, Batman and Robin are there, and Robin manages to entangle both the Joker and the Riddler with Bat-Ropes, and Batman ultimately concluding that the machines and computers are not a substitute for people. The last panel shows the robot making the sound effect sprang. This is a very nice nod and reference to the Golden Age artist Dick Sprang. I like that. Sprang was a masterful artist. He gave Batman a distinctive flowing cape and he was prone to include many oversized objects in his stories, be it on a billboard or in a museum exhibit. 
Dick Sprang is in my top five Batman artists in a list that includes Neil Adams, Marshall Rogers, Jim Aparo, and Irv Novick. Now, the story did not provide us any cliffhangers to speak of, but there were a nice group of villains here, and the story did have some charm and provided us with something different, but still true to the Batman 66 TV series. I'm giving Batman 66 8 out of 10 bats. We now move on to Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet number 4. The chapter is entitled The Treacherous Snare and is written by Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman with the art by Ty Templeton. The issue starts off with a flashback at Britt Reed's residence and the Green Hornet and Cato ascertaining that the Joker and General Gum will go after the Boldo coin collection. So they plan to break in and plan a tracking device on it. Now in present time, Batman and Robin arrive and try to prevent them from doing so. This leads to another standoff. The Green Hornet shoots sleeping gas at Batman and Robin, but they put on their gas masks before the gas can take them out. Kato throws a hornet dart, but it's deflected off Batman and Robin's bat shield. Batman tries to counter by throwing batarangs at Green Hornet and Kato, but the Green Hornet shatters them with his hornet's sting. While all this is going on, the villains are making off of the coin collection. A scream for help from inside the museum interrupts the confrontation, and Batman and Robin now see that the windows have been covered in gum, so they have to use the Batmobile's Batbeam to break inside while the Green Hornet and Kato make their getaway. Our heroes have found the coin collection, and the villains, both gone. A verbal clue leads our heroes to the site of the Last World's Fair, and there, Batman and Robin are suddenly surrounded by General Gum and his men who are pointing their glue guns at them. To be continued. I thought the best part of this comic book was the usual magnificent cover art by Alex Ross. I thought the storytelling, though, here was very slow and padded for the sake of the effects that were shown in the digital version of chapter of this story. Though the depiction of the Green Hornet in Kato's car, the Black Beauty exiting from its hidden garage, was very accurate, was it really necessary to devote two entire pages to show it? I think we only had three locations in this issue, and every scene at the Burt Reed Garage, the standoff at the museum, and at the World's Fair site were all too long and too slow. The Joker only appears on three pages, and General Gum just appears on one page. This series has had the potential to offer something special, but I think this was very pedestrian and very below average, especially with the creative talent involved here. With crisper writing, this should have been maybe a three or four issue miniseries, not the six issues we're going to get. For me, this issue takes yet another step backwards, and I'm going to take another step back and knock another point off out of spite. I'm giving Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet number four three and a half out of ten bats. What eccentric villain will appear in the next issue of Batman 66? What bat villain did Harlan Ellison plot a script for and is now being adapted to a Batman 66 comic book story? How will Professor William McElroy come to confound the dynamic duo in a future issue? These and other trying questions to be answered next time. Same Stella time, same Stella sight. Next up is the final chapter of Reading with Stella.
Costello presents Batgirl to Dare the Darkness by Doug Mensch. A story taking place in the Batman and Robin the movie universe. Copyright 1997, Little, Brown, and Company, New York. Chapter 9, Cornering Dragons. The Wyvern building rose from Gotham's central skyline like a black splintered sword. Identical dragon gargoyles, glisteningly alien, perched at each of the roof's four corners to keep watch against time. Their ornately jagged wings were spread and extended inward, tips overlapping to encircle the roof itself, as well as the towering broadcast spire rising from the roof center. If they were meant to be the guardians of the wyvern antenna, they were about to fail. Attack would not come from the sky, but from within. The night guard in the main lobby had just begun to doze when the entire world exploded around his head. He jerked awake to find plate glass flying everywhere. One wall of the lobby seemed to be missing, and in its place a strange vehicle was grinding through the wreckage on giant treads. It was an LST, an amphibious troop carrier stolen from the Southport Armory earlier in the evening, and it had just plowed right into the ground floor lobby of the Wyvern building. Mouth agape, the guard watched as the vehicle swerved and quivered to a halt. A wide door levered open from its door and slammed down to become a ramp. Scores of men poured forth, crushing glass underfoot. They were all masked, and every mask was different. They wore tight black outfits and looked like creepy-faced commandos. The night guard thought to reach for his weapon only after they were already swarming him. Three other guards rushed in from various points throughout the lobby. They, too, were immediately overpowered. Take their weapons! Black Mask commanded, Then bind their wrists and throw them out of here. He was standing at the center of the chaos. This building is ours now, he snarled, and its power is mine. He turned to a man holding a sledgehammer, whose mask made him look like third goon from the bottom on a totem pole. All right, Black Mask said, take out the passenger elevators. The man dragged his sledgehammer all the way across the marble floor. He stopped in front of an electrical access box and smashed it open. Then he stuffed a modest wad of plastique explosive inside and backed off 20 paces before thumbing an electronic detonator. There was a small explosion. All up and down the banks of elevators, indicator lights blinked out. Black mass turned back to the LST. Four men, mass-like apes, chimp, Gibbon, Baboon, and Gorilla were wheeling a large cart down the ramp. Careful with that, Black Mass snapped. It was a gleaming assortment of electronic components housed atop a generator mounted to the heart's base. Get it on to the freight elevator now. Then Black Mass turned to the rest of his obediently waiting gang. Behind his ebony mask, he gloated and sneered. Each and every one of these men would fight and die for him but only because they had no choice. They were nothing but puppets, and he worked the strings to their weak minds with utter contempt. Soon he would sneer at the whole city. I want ten more men on the freight elevator, and up in the control room with me and the ape techs. Like lemmings, ten masked men counted themselves off and filed toward the freight elevator. Then I want three men stationed on every landing in the stairwell, Black Mask continued. The rest of you will stay here and hold the lobby against whatever may come, and trust me, it will not be a lengthy siege. What remains to be done now is so simple that monkeys could do it. Then he strode to the freight elevator. Going up, he said, to the top. 
The Batblade and the Redbird flanked the Batmobile closely, all three engines idling with quiet power and lights off. They could see the shattered plate glass across the street and dark shapes milling through the lobby. He's already here, Batman said, and the fuse has been lit. No time to plan. We simply move. I'll create confusion on the way in. Then we hit them hard and fast, and we don't let up until they're all down. Batgirl and Robin nodded. And watch those weapons, Batman added. The Batmobile peeled across the street with the two motorcycles screeching right behind. A small bullpen missile shot from a tube above the Batmobile's front bumper. It flashed ahead, shrieking into the lobby. There was a muffled crumph, a concussion bomb. The masked gangsters were dazed and staggering when the three vehicles blasted into the lobby. Batgirl and Robin leaped right off their roaring cycles, each hero plowing into a different knot of thugs. Their cycles bowled over others. The Batmobile was still swerving to a halt when Batman ejected and catapulted right over the LST to land amidst the largest group of black mass soldiers. He shot his wrist grapnel around a Greek oracle's leg and yanked him off his feet. Then Batman spun around on his heels, whipping the man in a circle, beating back a dozen others and making room for the real fight. In the top floor control room under the transmitting tower, Black Mass stood like the new lord of a conquered domain, unaware that it had already been invaded. Jam that freight elevator, he said to one of his thugs. Make sure it stays right there. There were three other ways into the control room. One passenger elevator, a stairwell door, and a ceiling hatchway giving access to the roof. Black Mask wasn't worried about any of them. All the passenger elevators had already been blown out of commission, and men were stationed on every stairwell landing all the way up through the entire height of the building, with ten more right here inside the door. And if Police Commissioner Gordon wanted to try the ceiling hatch, let him. The entire city would be enslaved long before any such rooftop operation could be mounted. Indeed, long before the midnight deadline. Black Mask smiled bitterly. It was highly unlikely, of course, that the authorities would ever figure out his ingenious plan. But if they somehow did, he knew they would have to induce their own deliberate blackout just before the deadline. With his special generator, he would still be able to transmit his ELF signals, so the only way to foil the plan would be by preventing the reception of those signals. Which was why the deadline had been bogus from the start, along with the ransom demand. Fifty million was peanuts when the city was worth hundreds of billions. Black Mass turned to his text. All right, apes, he said. Start splicing my equipment into the antenna and cable feeds. Down in the lobby, bodies were sprawled just about everywhere, their masks and guns scattered. Not a single shot had been fired. Batgirl and Robin watched from a distance as Batman located the only passenger elevator, isolated from the others, that went all the way up to the top floor control room. He took a mini-explosive from his belt and forced the elevator doors open just enough to jam it between them. Then he ducked around a corner and waited for the small explosion to release the pneumatic catches. When he stepped back out to try the doors, they slid to the sides without resistance. He turned and looked down a row of other elevators at Batgirl and Robin out in the main lobby. I'm going up this shaft, he said. You can try the stairwell, but the minute it becomes too dangerous, back off. Then he turned away and was swallowed by the blackness of the elevator shaft. What do you think, Batgirl said, the red one or the green one? They were at a breaker panel in a utility room not far from the stairwell. Hey, don't be stingy, Robin said. Snip them both. Batgirl did so. Robin peeked outside. One of them did the trick, he said. The stairwell just went dark. 
They crossed to the door and paused to listen. Confused voices echoed down the long, concrete twist of stairs. Goons galore, Robin said. Not going to be an easy climb. Neither is Mount Everest. <laughs> yeah, so? So, Batgirl said, nothing else is worth the climb. She reached up to click on her night sight lenses. Robin did the same. Cool green details resolved from the blackness of the stairwell. First advantage, he said, ours. Got your earplugs ready? Batgirl asked. Yeah, their guns are going to make an incredible racket in there. It's nothing but one long, tall echo chamber. Batgirl reached for her belt. Think I'll start with a few flash bombs, she said. How about you? Probably smoke pellets, Robin replied. Ready? Go. Batgirl slowly turned the knob, then abruptly shoulder-slammed the door and lunged through with Robin right on her heels. Hurling smoke and flashes and bangs ahead of them, they went up three steps at a time and slammed the first guards down before they knew it was coming. Keep going, Batgirl urged. Don't give them a chance to brace for us. They raced up the second flight, and Batgirl leg-whipped a man in a volcano demon mask just as he raised his gun. The shot missed by a mile, but even with earplugs, they found the explosion nearly deafening as it reverberated up and down the stairwell. Robin elbow smashed a stylized alligator mask and kicked Richard Nixon flat. Batgirl shoved Robin's back. Go, 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 she urged. They fought their way up through 11 more landings before they were suddenly pinned down by a hellish hail of gunfire. It had started with a single shot from high above, and then, within seconds, it seemed like there was at least one gunman firing down at them from every landing above, near and far, creating so many muzzle flashes that the darkness became strobelit. And here I thought we'd escaped disco land, Robin muttered. Bullets rocketed and ricocheted everywhere. Cement flinders burst from the walls to sting their chins and cheeks. They tried to make themselves flatter against the wall, tried to shrink themselves to smaller targets. Remember how we were supposed to back off, Robin said, if it became too dangerous? Yeah, think it's time to back off yet? Batgirl gave him a thin, mirthless smile. Over my reckless body buster. All right, but if we're talking about forward and upward, Robin said, I can't budge another inch. How about you? Batgirl shook her head. Not without getting shot. A bullet smacked off the wall and whined past, so close they could feel its hum. This situation, Robin said, is really starting to get on my nerves. Mine too. So, uh, got a plan? Yeah, Batgirl said. Hit him where it hurts. Careful to keep her arm close to her flattened body, she reached for the back of her belt. And where would that be? In the ears, she said, slipping a sonic battering from the small of her back. She pressed a stud in its side, took a breath, and braced herself. Then she stepped right out to the center of the stairwell and hurled the battering straight upward through the muzzle flashes with all the force she could muster. The instant it left her hand, the battering began shrieking like a thousand banshees riding berserk bats through a bagpipe regiment. It was an ungodly, keening wail designed to do one thing and one thing only. Slice and dice eardrums into utter submission. The booming, strobing gunfire stuttered to a stop, and the stairwell was again seen through the cool green filters of their night vision lenses. Strangled cries of pain and confusion came from above. A few guns actually clattered and bounced down past them. Then the sonic battering fell back down, still streaking. Batgirl and Robin clamped their hands over their ears and waited for it to plummet past. All clear, Batgirl said. How many fours in this building? Thirty-nine, I think. Batgirl started up the stairs again. We're not even halfway to the top, she said. Better pick up the pace. Robin rolled his eyes and trudged up the stairs after her. 
Outside, police helicopters buzzed around the four dragons of the Wyvern building, as if challenging them to a sky fight. Powerful searchlights swept the transmitting antenna and roof, but nothing moved. Not yet. Were it not for his night lenses and the penlight quenched in his teeth, Batman would have been climbing through pitch blackness. As it was, the elevator shaft was still gloomy enough to make his progress treacherous at best. He had already hauled himself hand over hand up past some twenty floors of the building. And now, finally, he missed his next grip, slipped, and fell through the dark shaft. More angry with himself than panicked, he slapped his hand out and caught a cable. He slammed against the shaft wall, absorbing as much of the impact as possible with his thickly muscled shoulder. Then he dangled there, catching his breath, holding the cable as it resonated up and down the shaft like a metal whip. The man in the chimp mask stopped what he was doing. What was that? What was what? The man in the baboon mask replied. That twang! The baboon scratched his head. I didn't hear a twang. Just keep splicing those feeds, Black Mass said. He rose from his chair at the control console and turned toward the sound. Since this was the elevator's upper limit, the anchor housing was right next to the top of the shaft, left exposed for easy repair and maintenance. Someone's in that shaft, Black Mass said, probably looking for an elevator. He wrenched a fire axe from the wall. Let's send him one he said, and began chopping furiously at the cables wrapped around the anchor housing. It started as a hum high above him, but swiftly became a roar. Batman looked up to see an enlargening square. It was the bottom of the elevator car, plunging straight down at him. It filled the whole shaft. There was no way to evade it. No escape. Batgirl and Robin decked another three masked thugs and moved onward and upward. They really were feeling it in the legs now, but they were also very near the top, and that fact gave them a real boost. Only a few more landings, a few more battles, and they would be knocking on the control room door. Not too late, they hoped. With the cable twisted around one arm and one leg, Batman ripped the grapnel from his wrist launcher and let it drop. The elevator car was still hurtling down at him. There was little time. He jammed a missile into the launcher and fired straight up. The missile hit the bottom of the plunging car, and there was a deep, rumbling explosion. Batman hugged the shaft wall and let the fireball scorch down past him. It stole his breath for a moment and was gone. Then the remains of the elevator car pelted down as bits and chunks of shrapnel. Tightening his grip on the cable, Batman ducked his head and weathered the storm as best he could. When the last pieces fell past, he was bruised and even bleeding, but nothing would stop him now. In the control room, the explosion was heard as a dull boom, followed by a rattling of the elevator doors. Black Mass whirled in a rage. Who is in that shaft? The man in the gorilla mask looked up from his work and cocked his head questioningly. Chimp, Gibbon, and Baboon all nodded in confirmation. Splicing is complete, Black Mask, the gorilla answered. Access to everyone in Gotham is not possible. It was a normal night, more or less, throughout the broad avenues and narrow back streets of Gotham. Citizens did what they usually did. Some listened to radios, some watched TV. Some jabbered or cooed on the phone, and others surfed the internet. Only a few read books in total silence. And all of them, of course, were completely unaware that their brains were in dire jeopardy. You're sure it's ready? Black Mass demanded. As one, the four ape-masked men nodded. Then a new era in broadcasting, he said, is about to commence. Slowly, he reached toward the master switch. 
The stairwell door banged open, and Batgirl and Robin came swarming in, all flying fists and sweeping feet. A battering sliced unerringly between three masked guards to smack Black Mask's hand away from the switch. He spun to face the intruders, his frozen mask somehow enraged. Then another explosion blew the doors right off the elevator shaft behind him. He twisted around to see a dark wraith surging through the smoke. It was the Batman. Black Mask turned and bolted up the few steps to the ceiling hatch. Batman was a swift darkness flowing in pursuit. The four ape-masked techs simply gaped as Batgirl and Robin began punching and kicking their way through the guards. Searchlights from the buzzing police choppers illuminated the rooftop confrontation between Batman and Black Mask. With his back against the base of the huge transmitting antenna, Black Mask had nowhere to go as Batman closed in on him. Black Mask waited until he was certain he could not miss, then pulled a forty-five automatic and opened fire at point-blank range. Batman had already died for the shadows and was now rolling across the roof as Black Mask fired again and again until his weapon was spent. Then Batman rose to his full height, stepped from the shadow of a dragon, and began closing in again. Black Mask hurled his empty gun, and Batman barely lifted his hand to swat it away. Black Mask turned away and began scrambling up the antenna superstructure, instinctively seeking higher ground. With all the guards in the control room felled, Batgirl turned to the real danger. His transceiver equipment, she said. The four ape-masked techs were blocking it. Batgirl dropped the gorilla and the chimp with a single flying leap kick, and Robin decked Gibbon and Baboon with an old-fashioned one-two. Batgirl moved to the transceiver equipment and frantically began yanking splice cables from its feeds. Robin joined her and kicked the entire wheeled cart onto its side, smashing generator and components alike. They came out onto the roof in time to see Batman scaling the antenna after Black Mask. That computer creep had better watch it, Robin commented, or he's going to broadcast himself all over the city. Black Mask couldn't believe he'd come so close, only to be thwarted at the very last second. He hated the dark figure below him, the ruthless and relentless pursuer who had spoiled everything and chased him all the way up here into the high winds at the top of Gotham. It wasn't fair. He had chosen Bruce Wayne and Police Commissioner James Gordon as his opponents, not the supernatural being nipping at his heels. Even worse, he had already outwitted and defeated Wayne and Gordon, both of them, and yet his victory was still being spoiled. In supreme rage, he thrashed his foot wildly down at his nemesis. Batman darted back, evading the kick, and Black Mask lost his balance, then his grip. With a strangled cry, he pitched off the antenna into the start of what would be a long, long fall. Batgirl had already leaped out onto the intertwined wings of two dragon gargoyles. Robin! she shouted. Anchor me! Robin grabbed her left hand and dug his heels in at the edge of the roof. Even as Batgirl used her right arm to hurl a bat line that snagged the plummeting black mask at the last second and the very limit of the line. Robin simply gaped as Batgirl dropped from the dragon wings back to the roof, giving his cheek a peck of mock chivalry. Thanks, she said, for the slight assist. Then she hauled up on her line until she had Black Mask back on the roof. He swung at her in rage. She blocked his punch and smashed him with the crunching right cross that shattered his dark mask. The wooden shards fell away to reveal the glazed face of Roman Sionis. She let go and he crumpled. Yes, she murmured to herself. Told you so. Then she stood over the unconscious villain and said more emphatically, Mr. Sionis, I tender my resignation. But I suspect you're fired. Effective immediately, said a deep voice from above. She looked up to see Batman dropping down from the antenna. 
He landed facing her, part of his billowing cape finally settling down to mantle one of her shoulders as well. Then he put a hand on her other shoulder, looked her straight in the eye, and said, But your job is safe for as long as you want it. She wished she could stay there like that forever, safe and triumphant and accepted, strong and sure on a high roof within the protective wings of cornering dragons. Epilogue. Waiting Darkness. Well, Barbara said, pulling off her mask and making a big show of looking around, if I'm going to stay in this cave, I think it's time to discuss some changes in decor. Batman and Robin glared at her, murderously. But she was only tweaking them. Don't worry, she said with a grin. Your basic bat cave, deep black and grim gritty gray, it's cool with me. At least I can't clash with anything. And besides, I hear noir colors will be all the rage this year. Alfred beamed as he turned to Batman. No doubt about it, sir. You were indeed right about young Barbara, in every detail. Neither of us lost faith in her spirit or abilities, Batman said. We were both right about her, Alfred. Hey, wait a minute, Barbara said. I thought I just proved you were wrong about me. Alfred simply smiled and winked. Then he turned sober and dignified, shooting his cuffs, tugging his vest points, and turning smartly to exit. But he took no more than three steps before pausing to speak as if in afterthought. By the way, he said, I shouldn't shed those costumes just yet if I were you. The bat signal is blazing, you see. Again. Then, having said his piece, the butler resumed his exit. Batman looked at his partners. Ready? Batgirl and Robin answered in unison. And then some. Three gloved fists touched in one-for-all, all-for-one fashion. And the Batmobile, Batblade, and Redbird roared from the cave, following the signal's light to whatever darkness awaited. The End and remember that since reading with Stella is done, next week we will be back with Babs in the Tube. And we'll be talking about those 70s cartoons. So uh, stick around for that and be excited. Get excited. Okay, well, my literature recommendation is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And it's funny because I decided I'm going to read this book. Okay, I'd been read. Obviously, I read a lot of the summer, and then kind of took a break. And it was I, I read a lot of Sin City comics um, in order to prepare for another comic podcast that I'm on, uh, a movie podcast. And I decided, you know, I'm going to do this. And I knew how thick of a book I had, so I was super nervous about it. That it was going to take me years, ages. Then I realized it was only 600 pages, so it wasn't as bad. I was also nervous because I was. <sighs> I thought, you know, is this going to be like Charles Dickens? Because he very much gets into the minutiae and very just involved with details. And, and there are certain times where it's very fast and you get really excited and interested in what's going on. And other times that it drags on because of what's going on. But I have to say that I, I was quickly in, engrossed in this book. I, I think it's been a long time since I have been that excited and, and really interested in something that I, in, you know, a classic that I was reading. So this book, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, but, you know, the story takes place in France, and it follows Edmond Dante, and he, you know, he seems like a, a good guy, and he's young, and he 
comes back from a sailing trip, a trading venture, and seems to have everything he could ask for. He may be a captain. He, he may get married. He has the love of his father. And there are just people that are jealous of him. And so they decide to uh, make up a plot. And Edmund, unfortunately, gets arrested. And he's imprisoned, imprisoned for well several years let's just say and he he went in 18 years old and then he comes out and he's close to 30 if not 30 I don't remember the exact age and he decides to reward those in the skies of Count Monte Cristo no one knows who he is at this point in time but he decides to reward those that were faithful to him and to seek vengeance uh, to those that betrayed him and obviously uh, wronged him and put him in prison but uh, yeah just super I really like it it's just uh, I, I love the characters in there I love the the count I love the sort of tertiary little plot lines that are going on and just you get really invested and like I said engrossed in this so I, I really recommend and I've been like quickly reading I think it may have only taken me two weeks to read it so very very quick as long as you know you get ex as excited as me. So I definitely recommend The Count of Monte Cristo. Well, that's all I have for this episode. Remember that you can send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at backworldtooracle. And like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Backworld to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And I hope that you guys are enjoying the, the first bit of fall. Kind of feel it in the air. I'm loving that the, the temperatures are cooling. Can't wait to see the leaves change. I hope that uh, if any of you are out there and you were getting hit by that Hurricane Odile, uh, either in Cabo or I know there's a lot of rain in Arizona, I hope you guys are safe. Yes, blessings to you. So until next time. Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you?